0: good morning asbury seminary it is a joy for me to be with you i've never been in this sanctuary before after it has been so nicely updated so uh, there's a sacredness to this uh, pulpit and being here and a flood of memories that comes to mind but most of all it's a flood of gratitude Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Most of you don't know me, um, but uh, the faculty here uh, poured into me so much and equipped me and empowered me uh, to be able to do what I get to do now, which I love. So to all the faculty that are here, staff, administrators, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to pull a donjel today, if you know what that means. Um, Donjel gave me this word maybe uh, a decade ago when I heard him preach here. Uh, He said uh, something to the effect of, uh, this is not a sermon, uh, and neither is it a lecture. Uh, This is going to be a lerman. So hopefully it's not going to be a lemon. (laughs) Hopefully it'll be a... Lerman today, Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into God's Word. I love God's Word, and I love what it does for us, especially when we look at the Book of Acts as it shapes our imagination and our minds, and it reveals how the gospel took root and spread in the early church, and then spread all over the world. And let's go ahead and dive in. This is going to be times two New York pace, all right? I got a lot of ground to cover, so this may be a little uh, fast for, uh, but y'all are smart Kentucky folks, so you'll be able to track. Of course, there are plenty different types of preaching, and of course, we love expository preaching here, right? Uh, We love uh, taking a text, expounding it before, after, historical context. Uh, Of course, there's topical sermons. uh, But today, I'm going to do neither. I'm going to do a bit of a character dive into the life of Aquila and Priscilla. Better stated, Priscilla and Aquila, and you'll know why. But what I want to do with their life story is look at this through the lens of migration. And my talk today is titled, The Gospel Spreads Through Migrant Workers. So here we are. We are introduced to this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, in Acts chapter 18. And of course, it launches off by saying, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Of course, this is Paul's second missionary journey, which launches at the, beginning of ch- at the end of chapter 15 and the bulk of chapter 16. We know the story of how Paul Just the spirit of the obvious, right? Chapter 13, the first missionary journey, there's the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the ministry. But here, there's no voice of the Holy Spirit. It's just the spirit of the obvious. Take the gospel to the whole world, right? So they set out after a bit of a fight, and they go out trying to preach the gospel, and they are blocked every place they are blocked. So they're like, okay, maybe we'll try to go up north to Bithynia. Again, they are blocked until they get to Troas, and they see the vision of the man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. So they get on a ship, sail over, and that is the first time the gospel crosses over intercontinently in the book of Acts, right? The gospel crosses to the city of Philippi, modern-day country of Greece, and here's the first time the gospel crosses into Europe. And here we're told after this, meaning Paul had preached in Philippi, got beat up, escorted out of the city, churches planted. Notice there's no man from Macedonia in welcoming him. There was Lydia, though, and of course the man they met in the prison. And of course, from there, he goes in thinking, let me, I don't know about you, if I was Paul, I'd say now is a good time to cash in my reward points and get a little siesta, you know what I mean? (laughs) Not Paul, he keeps preaching. He goes to Thessalonica, preaches up a storm. He goes to Berea, he preaches up a storm, gets to Athens. And when he's waiting for his folks, his mission team to catch up to him, he's still preaching up a storm. And after that, he lands in the city of Corinth. Again, a perfect time to get a little break he lands in Corinth, and the Bible tells us he meets a couple. First, a Jew named Aquila, and we're told he's, from the native, he's a native of Pontus. Pontus is a city in the modern-day country of Turkey, right up on the coast of the Black Sea, right? Up northern Turkey, and he is from Pontus. We also know that he is a diaspora Jew. So he's from the Judean diaspora. He's Jewish by ethnicity, but living in Turkey. And now we find him in another continent in Corinth. And then we're introduced, of course, Aquila's name means eagle. And we're introduced to his wife, Priscilla. And Priscilla, of course, is the term that uh, is the diminutive of the formal word Prisca, which Paul prefers and Luke prefers Priscilla. And so. Somehow they get together. We don't know where exactly they met, but they get together and they get married. But now they're in the city of Corinth. We're told that they were expelled in verse 2. It says, there he met them, and Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So we know this historical note that Luke always gives us, thankfully, that around 49 AD, Claudius the emperor had kicked all, at least it says all the Jews, whether it's all the Jews or all the leaders of the Jewish Christian community, what we know is that he kicked them out and Part of that dispersion is what led Aquila and Priscilla to come and settle in the city of Corinth from Rome. It also tells us that perhaps this conflict that was happening that had spilled over into the streets that Claudius was really worried about, was it a conflict between the Jewish community and the Jewish Christian community? It's not explicit in the text, but there was some conflict that spilled over and they were expelled, and they land in the city of Corinth. And it is here that Paul meets them. Most likely, they were already believers when Paul met them. We don't have their conversion story, but we do know that there were people from uh, from Rome in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, so was it, were they influenced by the day of Pentecost? We don't know, but what we do know is that they were not necessarily converted under Paul's ministry. They were most likely believers in Jesus prior to their meeting of Paul. What it tells us in the next verse is really interesting. They invited Paul in. So Paul lands in the city of Corinth. He most likely went to a guild or a society of tent makers, met this couple, and they took him in to work in their family business and most likely provided them house, provided him housing too. And so they established together the church in Corinth together with Paul. And then you continue reading this text in chapter 18, and we see that uh, following this, Paul's preaching up a storm. 18 months later, he says, it's time for me to go to the next city. And that's where we pick up in verse 18. It says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. But before he sailed, he had his hair cut off. But then he lands in the city of Ephesus, and we're told, This guy, he gets there, and he leaves them there. So notice, they are the product of involuntary migration out of Rome into Corinth. And from Corinth, they move continents and now goes back to Turkey, which is into the province of Asia. And here, Paul leaves them there and then continues on his journey. And here, we're told that Aquila and Priscilla were the catalyst in establishing the Christian community in Ephesus. There are about six times in the Scriptures where this couple's names are mentioned. Of course, here in the Book of Acts, and then three other places, and I want to look at each of them with you. The first other place that you see outside of the Book of Acts is in 1 Corinthians, and then in 2 Timothy, and then in Romans. So Paul, of course, writes 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. And this is in his last closing greeting section of 1 Corinthians. Here's what he says. The churches in the province of Asia, writing from Ephesus to Corinth, writing from the continent of Asia into Europe, he says the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord And so does the church that meets in their casa. Did you catch that? Yeah. There's some Spanish in my NIV translation too. (laughs) What Paul is saying is he is saying Aquila and Priscilla by name warmly greet you to the church in Corinth. Because, of course, the church in Corinth was established by Aquila and Priscilla and so they would warmly remember them. But notice also what he's saying is from Ephesus, they have planted a house church in their home and that house church sends greetings. This is Paul's marvelous, catalytical, networker, uh, instinctive leadership shining through. He's connecting people to people and places to places, knitting this vast network of early church together. And he says, these guys are sending you greetings. I don't know where I am in my notes, but don't worry, it's all in my heart. (laughs) We'll catch up somewhere, right? And so from Ephesus, he says, they have planted a church here, and so does the church that meets in their house. And then in verse 24 of this chapter 18, we're told that this wonderful preacher, an exceptionally gifted preacher named Apollos, who's from Alexandria, who's well-trained in rhetoric and philosophy, he's convincingly arguing about the validity of Jesus as Christ, as the Messiah, and he's winning converts all over the place. He had a little bit of deficiency in his theology, and so we're told, notice the sequence, Priscilla and Aquila, pulled them aside, brought them into the sanctum of their home and instructed him more accurately and then sent him on his way to keep preaching. And notice now you begin to see the lead role that Priscilla is playing here, especially when it came to the instructive and teaching portion of the ministry. And then we're told in verse 27 of chapter 18 that our buddy Apollos wanted to go preach in the province of Achaia, which is where Corinth is. So from Ephesus, he wants to go intercontinentally. And so what do you do when, you have, when you're going con- cross-continently to preach the gospel? You can't just, the church in Corinth can't just go to YouTube and say, Apollos, preacher, and then check out his YouTube sermon and say, ah, he's good, let's invite him. That doesn't exist, right? YouTube is not there yet. They had to wait a few years for that. So what did they have? Letters from respected clergy, respected leaders of the community who could vouch for people, and that's what Aquila and Priscilla did. And they wrote letters so that Apollos could go preach the gospel in Achaia, and again, he preached up a storm and led many to the Lord. The next place where you see, of course, you have in Acts, you have in 1 Corinthians, and then you see Paul writing to his protege. In Timothy, in 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 19, of course, we know Timothy was installed in Ephesus as preacher. And so Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 4, and he says in verse 19, greet Priscilla and Aquila, notice the sequence again, and the household of Onesiphorus. Again, Paul is recognizing that at some point, well, of course, they served in Ephesus. We don't know how long necessarily, but he is recounting to Timothy, who is staying in Ephesus, hey, Greet them, because he's recognizing that Timothy, at some point, is going to interact with Aquila and Priscilla, whether they're still, at the time of writing of 2 Timothy in Ephesus or not, he knows that Timothy is going to interact with these leaders, so he's saying, make sure you pass my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. Now the third verse, and I love this one. I love all of them, but especially this one. It's from the Book of Romans paul writes this masterful treatise on salvation he gets to chapter 16 and he lists out all of the people that he wants to greet again paul's never been to rome paul did not plan the church in rome so but he is writing to the church and he wants them to know hey i know a lot of your people and a lot of your people have been influenced by me and i have had a privilege to invest in their lives so he lists out a lot of names and right at the top of those lists is the name of Priscilla and Aquila. But notice the description Paul uses. In verse 3, 4, and 5, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, ah, I love this word, my coworkers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them, ah, greet also the church that meets in their house. Did you catch that? So Paul's writing this somewhere in the mid-50s, right? 57, 80, perhaps. By now, Claudius has died. And the decree that expelled all the Jews has been repealed, which means at some point, our friends Priscilla and Aquila, who had moved from, of course, Judea into Pontus, from Pontus to Rome, from Rome to Corinth, Corinth to Ephesus, and from Ephesus, they moved back again to Rome when Claudius died. And what we are told here is that they've planted another church. Y'all catching that? Tracking with me so far? Not so fast, no? But notice the first thing he says here in Romans 16 about them. He says, they are my co-workers, the Greek word synergos, from which we get the English word synergy, right? This is one of Paul's favorite words, co-laborers, co-workers. He uses this for about 19 of his, 18 or 19 of his co-workers, of his associates. He lists about 100, but he reserves this title for those who shared the hard work of the ministry with him. And he says, they are my co-workers, coworkers, my co-laborers in the ministry. Second thing he says is, ah, this is an interesting one. He says, they risked their necks for me. Wow. Now, clearly, this is a graphic descriptor, right? He's not saying they were, I mean, this is, you know, uh, know, uh, signifying what? The The guillotine right? He is talking about they risked their necks, meaning most likely at some point they're not the proletariat of the society. They have some social standing. Perhaps they were Roman citizens, and of course citizens were executed by decapitation rather than painful, slow deaths such as crucifixion. So when Paul says they risked their necks for me, what is Paul referring to? Most likely He's probably talking about some riots, especially writing from Ephesus. Maybe he was thinking about the riot that happened in Ephesus, but either which way, he is recognizing that they they stuck their necks out so that Paul could continue his ministry. They were co-workers, they risked their necks, and all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Ethnos, all the churches of all these nations, ethnic groups are grateful for them. Can you imagine a better compliment? that all of the places where Paul has gone and preached, all the people that have come to know Jesus and love Jesus, Paul is saying, man, these guys have a part in all of the fruit that we are experiencing because of the critical role that they have played for the nations in, in capturing and cultivating a passion for the gospel for the nations. Remember, this is a time where there were people harboring Jewish exclusivity of the gospel. Not everybody was rah, 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 let's go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, right? You have the unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene in the book of Acts chapter 11. These are major markers when mythological breakthroughs, if you will, of the gospel crossing. People were not enthusiastic necessarily. Remember, Peter had to see the vision three times. Even in his dreams, he's a kosher-keeping Jew. So the other point is, These diasporic Jews, notice, migrant Jews who were living in the diaspora, somehow had the capacity to dream of the inclusion of the ethnos, the nations, the Gentiles, in the family of God. He says, all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them and greet also the church that meets in their home. Here's my point, migrant workers spread the gospel through the process of forced and voluntary migration, employing their vocational skills and their trade in establishing livelihood, which provides the base for missions. Notice, this family, we've just traced about at least five migratory moves for them. And at least in three of those cities where they've moved, they have not only had to establish a new home, And for those of you who've moved a ton, you know this is not easy to pick up, pack your bags, move cross country, cross continents, sometimes kicked out by some ruler who doesn't want anything to do with you or your faith, religious persecution, asylum seekers. People have forcefully had to move. Some have to voluntarily move. But the point is, they've had to move, and each place they had to set up a home, not just set up a home, set up a livelihood, set up a business. And the business they set up, my friends, added value to the community. It not only provided legitimacy for them, it provided value to the society, and they used their livelihoods to set up base, to provide hospitality for itinerant evangelists who would travel through. They set up home, they set up livelihood, and they set up a church in their homes. My friends, Migrant workers spreading like Aquila and Priscilla were some of the catalysts for the formation of the early church. Notice, my friends, in their lives, the total integration of their vocation, of their faith, of their home, and of their calling. My friends, we bring our whole selves to the work of the kingdom, is it not? We don't have the luxury of privatized religion. We don't have the luxury of, oh, this is my home and I go worship in the church building over there. The early church didn't have those compartmentalized lives. Their home was their sanctuary where they worship and where they hosted. All of it was fully integrated. Planting a church, you know, I'm a church planter. You know how hard it is to plant a church in America? You know what takes the bulk of my energy weekly? Production. Stream, sound, God bless you guys. The only time you get attention is when something goes wrong. God bless you. <laughs> it takes so much of my time and energy, you know? And of course, church planting is such an expensive thing in America. But the early church was so nimble. We're like elephants. You know, a church planter in India, he had to, he was a church planter all throughout North India. Ezekiel Joshua, some of you might know, he had to come and preach in one of the big seminaries in South India and give a talk about, uh, you know, church planting or something, and he says, you know, seminaries, you know, speaking about Indian seminaries, are 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 like elephants. Every now and then, once in a while, the elephant gives birth and the whole village comes to celebrate. Wow, a church is born, you know? But these church planting institutes, like these, you know, uh, they're like rabbits. They're just multiplying all over the place, you know? Now, I value production, I value live stream, because if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have survived COVID. Our church launched the Sunday before COVID broke out in the city that was the epicenter for COVID in America. So I know how valuable production of live stream is, but I think there's some value for us to tune into here about the nimbleness of church planting about how it's so integrated with our personhood, how it's integrated with your home life, how it's a full family endeavor. There's not this distinction between clergy and laity and no distinction between seminary-trained and vocational-trained. It's just all fully integrated into people who are just simply disciples of Jesus on mission. They lived integrated lives. But secondly, my friends, I want you to notice about the early spread of the gospel in the early church. How did this happen? How did this Jesus movement take off? You know, so many of our heroes, and, and I love it, are people like Paul and Peter, and we preach about them all over the world, right? It was an OMF uh, missionary from Japan who once told me, you know, we love Paul, and in the mission field, there are a lot of uh, leaders like Paul. There's not enough Barnabases out there. You know, it was her very subtle way of saying, we need need some, yes, strategic thinkers and like movers and shakers, but we also just need some encouragers, you know. How did the movement take off? And of course, we think so much of the people who are the forefront characters, but I love that Luke gives us these snippets here and there, and Paul gives us these snippets of Epaphroditus and people who, Epaphras, right? And all of these people who are synergos, co-workers with Paul, who really are the backbone of the church. Aquila and Priscilla are the backbones that you find that were the catalyst for us. Paul left Ephesus. Don't forget. He dropped them off and said, see you later, and went off. And then sometime later, yes, he came back and spent a longer term there. But, but the point is, it was these folks who were the backbones. I mean, you think of Paul landing in the city of Philippi, and he met Lydia, a purple cloth merchant. In other words, she was the Vera Wang of the Philippian society, right? She was clothing the royalty. Or Phoebe, the number one person listed in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Who was Phoebe? She was, the, she was a benefactor. She hand-delivered the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. She was an independently wealthy businesswoman. I don't have time to tell you about Nympha or Gaia. As other folks mentioned there in Romans 16 who all led house churches. For the sake of repetition, let me go ahead and say they planted churches in their house. And these were the benefactors of of the ministry, people who followed Jesus, of course, like Joanna and Mary, and people who followed Paul, without whom the ministry would not exist. My friends, in all of these cases, what you see is that they use their homes as base for the ministry. I went through here seven years. I lived in this beautiful town and worshiped in this place, and I know we love Wesley, and I know there are some other heroes of the faith, you know, that our people like to quote, but I hope you don't mind that I'll quote one of my heroes, that now that I'm an ordained minister with the Krishna Missionary Alliance, who is also in many ways uh, impacted by the holiness movement. Let me quote A.B. Simpson. Do you all know Simpson? You all should get to know him, wonderful man. Here's what he says about commenting about this particular passage. And he says, and I quote, and so the service of Aquila and Priscilla was enlarged and exalted, he wrote this about 100 years ago, until their home became the very sanctuary of the early church and the starting point of the greatest movements of primitive Christianity. It was there, as we have seen, that the church in corinth was nurtured and cherished it was there that apollos was led into the light it was there afterwards that the church in ephesus began and it was there the greatest of all the churches the church in rome seems to have started at least it is certain that they had returned to rome before paul to the, the to, before paul returned to the romans had himself visited the city indeed before he even wrote the epistle to the romans for in the closing greeting of that epistle he asks to be remembered to them and to the church that was already in their house. Thus, it was not Peter, it was not even Paul, it was probably a simple, humble, godly pair who were honored of God to establish the gospel in the very capital of the world. Finally, I want you to notice that these are migrant workers. And the gospel spreads through migration. It's Peter C. Phan, a Vietnamese-born American Catholic theologian who teaches at Georgetown University. He wrote a book called God the Migrant, and I want to quote for you a short paragraph that he wrote, and I'll have to read this a little fast, all right? So bear with me. He says, and I quote, the U.S. Catholic Church would not have existed at all without migration and migrants. You know, Andrew Walls, the wonderful uh, mission historian, would say, stated as the gospel survives by cross-cultural transmission. This is just another way to say the same thing. He's saying the church would not have existed at all without migration and migrants. And he explains by saying this, Catholics, prior to the establishment of the 13 colonies, were mainly Mexicans, especially in California, Texas, and New Mexico, thanks to Spanish missions and Native Americans especially in Michigan and Louisiana, thanks to the French mission. He says, however, US Catholics in its Anglo-European form began with the arrival of English Catholics to Maryland in 1643, and then in the 19th century by migrants from Ireland, Germany, French Canada, Italy, Poland, and other Eastern European countries. Later, with the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, it opened up the country to people based on skills, not place of origin, opening up to people from Asia, Africa, the Middle East, Southern and Eastern Europe. Post 1970s, large number of migrants came from China, Korea, Philippines, Vietnam, and Central America. Substantial numbers of these were Catholics. And he says, my contention is that Migration, without migration, the church as a whole, and Christianity as such, would not have existed as a world religion. He goes on to say, he says, uh, I'm going to propose a fifth mark of the church. Now, of course, we confess the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic, right? To that, he adds a fifth. And he says, it's one holy Catholic, apostolic, and migrant. Without migration, of course, Acts chapter 8, Persecution dispersed the folks, right? Acts chapter 11, persecution, again, is what dispersed them to Antioch. And we can go through the list, chapter 13, Paul brought the gospel on the first missionary journey all across Asia Minor, and chapter 16, of course, the second missionary journey into Europe. Without migration, the gospel, could we say that it could actually become a world religion? My friends, migration has been the catalyst for the spread of the gospel, and that's true for Kuwait, where I was born and raised. Tim has a way, Dr. Tennant has a way of uh, teasing me sometimes saying, Stanley is the only person who got a PhD for writing his own story. That's his (laughs) dissertation, you know. And it's true, you know. Uh, I was born and raised in Kuwait and I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on Indian churches in Kuwait and their transnational connections to India. But if you'll think about it, early missions began to arrive in Kuwait in the late 1800s, early 1900s from the Reformed Church in America. Folks such as as Arthur Bennett and Samuel Zwemer and that whole movement established mission all across the Arabian Gulf. But even if you look at early newspapers from Kuwait, they brag that these early missions yielded zero converts except those who are majdoon or crazy is their explanations for Muslims who actually become Christian. they they, They don't have their full faculties working, that's why they became Christian. That's one of their charges, you know? But as you look at this history, and of course, you know, you may say, they may say Christianity hadn't really taken root. But it was post 1970 migration to countries like Kuwait and Qatar and Bahrain and UAE and Saudi Arabia that has just completely reshaped the religious demography of these regions that is the cradle of Islam. So much so that, There are more than a million Christians in Saudi. In my estimation, there's at least 17% of the country of Kuwait is Christian. Can you imagine that? Yes, all of them, the bulk of them, 99.9% of them, are Indians and Filipinos. And of course, that is true, but my point is, migration is changing the religious demography of a region that was decidedly Islamic for centuries. My friends, migration is altering the religious demography. Here's my point as I close. It is not just out there in the world that these changes are happening. It is right here in the United States. We talk about the global shift of of Christianity and the shift to the global south and the majority world rise of Christianity and so on and so forth. But already in the Krishna-Machine Alliance that I'm part of in the United States, more than 40% of our churches in the United States are already ethnic immigrant congregations. Over nearly 40% of U.S. evangelical Christians are already minorities from Asia, represented you know, people who are non-majority culture. Christianity and migration, migration is not only reshaping global Christianity, migration is reshaping Christianity in North America. Our clergy is changing. Our demographics of our church is changing. Of course, we say the world is our parish, and we say, of course, the world is now in my parish, but the world, it is, we do have a problem. We have the rise of the religious nuns. The place where I live is, you know, it it is easy to find churches filled with people that are incredibly diverse. Almost every member of my church is from a different country. But a group that is missing are white folks. So we need missionaries to white people to come to New York. <laughs> so if you would like to sign up, I have a sign-up sheet at the back. <laughs> Our country is changing, and my point is, my friends, migration could, be, could very well be the gift and the boon that God is using to even reshape how the US Christianity will look like in the near future. So here's my call to you dare i say god is calling all of us to be priscilla's and aquilas men and women on mission or better said women and men on mission who combine their skills with their love for jesus women and men who can teach and preach the gospel skillfully with grace and with tact women and men who will go wherever the lord sends them with clarity of heart with integrated lives, with a vision of Jesus' mission, wholly devoted to be disciples of Jesus, who will go do three things. Go set up a livelihood, set up a home, and then use both to build up God's kingdom, Amen? amen? Will you pray with me? Lord, we want to be about your kingdom. We want to be disciples on mission. We want to be scholars on fire. We want to be people, Lord, who will go everywhere you send us. We want to be people who will say, Lord, send us anywhere, only you go with me. Lord, we want to be people that will use everything you've given us, how you've wired us, our identities, our migrant identities, how we have the skills you've given us, our homes, the resources. And Lord, just bring that all together, Lord, so that we can help build up the body of Christ so use us dear Lord we don't want to sit on the bench we don't want to hit snooze we want to be part of your great kingdom work use us Lord to see people as you see them people on the margins people that may be on the margins of society help us to see that they are partners in mission here on purpose here with kingdom work kingdom purpose And help us to fan the flame of the mission that you are doing in all of our hearts. So, Lord, we pray. Spirit, empower us. Help us to be disciples on mission with you. We pray this. And all God's people said, "Amen." amen. God bless you.